for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Welcome back for our uh, series, But Now, as we're going through the book of Romans. Um, recently, my daughter has become fascinated with fish. Uh, at school, we got to check out the fish tank. At the library, we have to gaze at the different species they have in their aquarium. And I've even taken her to a pet store where they have hundreds of fish of all different colors and sizes. And her eyes open wide as she looks at these fish and she shouts, Daddy, look at the fishies! Now, these fish are safe, but I want to, want to introduce you to a fish you probably won't find in these tanks, the puffer fish. Right? According to National Geographic, the puffer fish inflates to evade predators. It looks a bit like this on the screen. It's also known as the blowfish. Now, these clumsy swimmers fill their elastic stomachs with a lot of water and sometimes air, blowing themselves up to several times their normal size. And aren't they just so cute? Don't you just want to take one of those home, put them in your aquarium, right? That's, that's exactly the thing I want in my house. Now, they aren't just cute. Most pufferfish contain a certain toxic substance that makes them foul-tasting and potentially deadly to other fish, right? So the toxin that they have, listen to this, is deadly to humans. In fact, 1,200 times more deadly than cyanide. There's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 human beings, like these front rows, done, you're out if you encounter a puffer fish. There's no known antidote. Now, like the puffer fish, human beings can blow themselves up with pride and arrogance to make themselves look better, that, or bigger than they are, I should say. And this pride can lead to toxicity within a marriage or a friendship or a church, and so it's no wonder that the late Bible scholar John Stott said this, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. Now some of the audience or you're watching at home may be saying, what in the world do fish have to do with the book of Romans? Well, I want to submit that the church, without reflection, will be filled with puffer fish. Now some churches are teeming with puffer fish. These are the people who are puffed up with knowledge but have no humility. These are the people who flaunt their religious credentials. These are the people who are all about the truth but have no grace. And when you become a religious puffer fish, it leads to what I'll call the dark side of religion. Because here's the truth, and I think the tension. The longer we're Christians, there is a tendency, a pull, if you will, to become more religious the longer we're Christians, the more comfortable we are going through the motions when we take the gospel for granted when we should be grateful. The longer we're Christians, 
the greater chance we have of believing that we're better than other people. We be easily become puffer fish if we're not careful. The longer you're in the church, the more you know how to do church. Let me give you an example. I freely admit that I grew up in the church, okay? Some of you out there probably, that's the case as well. At the church, I learned about Jesus, but I also learned to take pride in my religious accomplishments. So I attended Sunday school in the church I grew up in, and at the end of the year, if you did not miss more than three Sundays during that year, you received an attendance pin, and it looked like this, and I kid you not, they looked exactly like this. So like other churches must have used this, because I had these things growing up. Now again, I'm not saying that um, it was bad that I went to Sunday school, um, and I have to admit, at least part of my motivation for going to Sunday school was to get one of these pins at the end of the year. And by the time I was done, I had 12 years of pins just dangling from my chest as I went to church every Sunday. Like, they, they flopped around and people could see them. Now again, it's not bad that I went to Sunday school, but it's problematic when we start flaunting our religious accomplishments for all the world to see thinking that we're better than others. And if you're sitting here today and you didn't grow up in the church, you're probably thinking, pins, really? Lame. But you're also asking the question, do people look down on me because I don't know as much as the other person? Now, I know for many out there, it's probably not Sunday school pins, but I would ask, what is it? What do you flaunt? Where do you have a tendency to be a puffer fish? Maybe we love to tell people how much we know about the Bible. Maybe we love to be the whistleblower when we see a violation. Maybe we love to tell people how much we serve. Or maybe we attend as many small groups as possible so people can look at us and say, he or she is so busy for the Lord. So here's what I've noticed over the years. We can become so familiar with church that we know how to play the game. And what I have to ask myself is, have I become such a professional churchgoer that I know how to play this game, right? Right, if we grew up in the church or we've been in church for a long period of time, we learn the rules, right? And religious people love rules. Because if you can keep the rules, you can show others that you're better at it than them. And what are the rules? Act, always act happy, Share just enough so it looks like you're vulnerable, but not too much. If someone says something profound, you always need to respond with, mmm, yes. The problem is when someone comes to church and they don't know how to play the game, they feel lost. Religious people treat church like a game, but church isn't a game. We're not here to play church, we're here to be the church. All those activities inflate our egos and make us feel better than others, and that is what takes us to the dark side. Now, in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul is going to speak directly to the Jews of his day, the religious people, the people who love to flaunt their Sunday school pins, the pufferfish. And if you remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks to the Gentiles, those who don't follow God at all. And in the first half of Romans chapter 2, Paul confronts the self-righteous people. Today, he's going to speak to religious people. And he's going to say this, if you want to avoid religious superiority, if you don't want to be pufferfish, you need to do at least three things. First, you have to examine your pride. Second, we have to examine our hypocrisy. 
And then finally, and most freeing, we have to discover true religion. So before we dive into those points, let's, let's pray and ask God for help. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, Lord. And I pray this morning uh, for religious people like me, Lord, that you would come and you would humble us, that you would break our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to have a greater dependency upon you. Holy Spirit, would you move us to the foot of the cross, recognizing that all of us deserve judgment, Lord, and yet those who know you and are found in you, Lord Jesus, have received mercy. Help us to never take that for granted, and may you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, we have to examine our pride. So let me ask a question. What are you proud of? What are you proud of? Because there's things in our lives that we've accomplished or that have been given to us that we love to talk about, right? Consider how much time and effort you spend on looking good. And I'm not talking about like diets or new clothes. I'm talking about reputation building. We all want something to be proud of. We all want something to boast about. And that's the very thing that Paul criticizes the Jews about. Look at verse 17. He says, you who call yourself Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. Now, see, immediately in this verse, we see three things that the Jews are boasting about, and in total in this section, we'll see five. Here's the first three. I think all of them can be applied to religious Christians, too. The first one is that they're boasting in their nationality and their title. So when Paul says, you who call yourself Jews, he's getting at the idea that these people love being Jews, right? In other religious circles, they will make it very clear who they are and where they're from. Now, in Paul's day, Jew had become a common designation for anyone belonging to the people of Israel. And the nationality and title that was there was communicating a special religious status to other people. And of course, that became a point of pride, now think about it this way. Many of us in this room have a nationality that we're proud of. Okay, you might say, I'm an Italian, and we make amazing food. Or you might say, I'm Jamaican, and we got great music, and our jerk chicken is to die for. Or others in here have titles that you're really proud of. Maybe it's titles like president, or PhD, or RN, or top scorer at whatever video game that you play. I don't know. Paul's point is that the Jews are boasting in their identity. Now, secondly, the Jews are boasting about their possession of the law. And the second privilege here is the root of the Jews' problem. They have the law, which is a genuine blessing from God, but they thought that relying on the law exempted them from judgment. And so Paul's point in this section is, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. It doesn't exempt you. So think about it this way. Um, this is what the Jews, this is the way the Jews were treating the law. Uh, do you remember when you were a kid and you found out a secret? And maybe this was just me, I don't know, maybe it was you too, but you would go to your friends and you would shout, I know something you don't know, I know something you don't know. Right, maybe I was just the only one that did that. But how did it feel if you were taunted, like people like me, taunted that I had a secret and you didn't have? See, the Jews thought they were okay because they simply had the law. Now, thirdly, they boasted about their chosen status. And so the last point that Paul makes in this verse is that the Jews have a special relationship with God. Abraham, their ancestor, was chosen by God to become a nation who would reveal God's purposes to the world. 
In 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9, Paul tells us that the church is also God's chosen nation, a special possession. And so again, Paul's point is to say that we should not be boasting. It's too easy to boast in this special status. Now to be sure, if you're a follower of Christ and he's changed your life, you are chosen and you do have a special status, a child of God. But it's not, it is not something that you boast about or rub in other people's faces. It's something that we're grateful for. It's something that should produce humility. So Paul continues in verse 18. He says this, You know what he wants. You know what's right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in the darkness. Now see, when Paul says, you know what he wants, he's focusing now on a fourth category of pride for religious people, the category of ethics. They're boasting about their ethics. Because of the revelation they had through the law, they knew right and wrong. And they looked down their noses at others who didn't. God had given the Jews a detailed list of rules to follow. And obedience was a way that they pleased God, yes. But it was also a way that they used to look down on other people. Now, especially in our current cultural landscape, we should ask ourselves, do we boast in our knowledge of right and wrong? And do we look down on others who don't get it? Because in today's world, we have a tendency to categorize people. While we should stand for the truth, we should not do so in a prideful way. Now, finally, and fifth, they were boasting in their evangelism. In their evangelism. See, verse 19 tells us that the Jews were to be a guide for blind people and a light in the darkness. This was the call that God had for Abraham to reveal himself to the nations. But I got to tell you, to boast to other people that you are evangelizing them is not really a great strategy, right? We may even be prideful in our evangelism, but it's not about pride. It's about calling. Our hearts should break for those who are lost. I mean, imagine walking up to someone and saying, I'm God's gift to you. I'll show you the way. No, no, no. <laughs> you have to do it winsomely and humbly show people the truth of the gospel, you may be doing the right thing, but, you may be, but your heart may be doing it for the wrong reasons. It's not just another notch on your religious belt. See, Paul confronts the Jews here directly for their prideful attitude. Verse 20, he says, You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. You're certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not saying that there's anything wrong with being a Jew. He's not saying there's anything wrong with being a devout Christian. What he is saying in these opening verses is this. He says, you brag. You rely too much on your accolades. And it isn't changing your heart. As Tim Cower says, the content of the law is fine, but using the law as a way that leads to eternal life only leads to death. Now, before we leave this section, I would invite us all to look at those five areas of boasting that I just mentioned and ask yourself, what areas do I boast in? And it will be really instructive for us to look at those few verses and remove that word Jew and insert the word Christian. So it could read something like this. You call yourself a born-again Christian and you are sure you are right because you signed a commitment card. 
or you walked down an aisle, or you prayed a prayer, and you really cried that night. You remember you had strong feelings for God, so you must have been converted that night. You've memorized dozens of scripture verses. You know the right answer to many questions about the Bible, and you've led other people to make a commitment to Christ. And you're boasting in those accomplishments. See, the pride behind all of that has led you to think you're better than others, and that's what leads to the dark side of religion. Listen to what actor Leonardo DiCaprio says about pride. He says, as soon as enough people give you enough compliments and you're wielding more power than you've ever had in your life, it's not that you become arrogant or become rude to people, but you get a false sense of your own importance and what you've accomplished. You actually think that you've altered the course of history. Now, he's not even a Christian, and he gets it. That pride, even in good things, can lead to destructive tendencies. So we must examine our pride if we're to avoid religious superiority. Examine our pride, or it will destroy us and others. We'll be like the pufferfish. The toxicness of us will lead to those around us. So examine your pride, but secondly, secondly, examine your hypocrisy. Examine our hypocrisy. See, religious people are very, very good at pointing fingers. But they often don't take a scalpel to their heart. And Paul calls out their hypocrisy by asking a few questions. Verse 21, he says, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Right? See, first, he asks, essentially, if the Jews are really and truly learning from the law or just boasting about their possession of it. Again, we can have Bibles in our homes. We can possess them. But if we don't open those Bibles, does it really matter? The great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this. He said, as you read the Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourselves? There, listen to this. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, <laughs> the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. Now pause and take that in for just a second. That is a profound statement because I think there's a lot of Christians out there, religious Christians, who know a lot about the Bible but don't apply it to their lives. They can spar theologically with the best of them, but they're prideful and arrogant, not loving and graceful. These are the pufferfish. Don't get too close or you will feel the sting of their poison. Let me illustrate it this way. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal asked a sample group of doctors this question. You make a lot of recommendations to your patients, but do you incorporate those suggestions into your lives? And sadly, most doctors admitted they don't take their own healthy advice. For example, doctors often warn their patients about stress and burnout, yet 40% of surgeons say they were burned out. Now, maybe that's the first interview question you should ask the surgeon before your next surgery. Are you burnt out? Because I don't want you operating on me if you are. Now, the same is true for our spiritual lives. We need to let the Bible read us, not just read the Bible. 
Now, Paul continues his indictment upon the religious Jews in verse 21. He says, again, you who preach, next slide, please. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, each of these questions here points to a flagrant violation of the law on the part of the religious person. It's an example of how they had failed to teach themselves. That while there may be a perception of religious activities, it can lead to pride, especially if you're not practicing what you preach. And so the first two questions have to do with sections of the Ten Commandments. He asks, do you steal? A violation of this commandment can range from extreme to mild. Right on the extreme side, someone can embezzle money from their company or engage in tax evasion. On the mild side, we find violations we tend to overlook. Things like we steal some extra money on our, uh, steal some extra time on our lunch break. Or we download videos without a license. Paul's point is that we tend to act religious, but we are all lawbreakers if we're honest. He says, do you commit adultery? And this, of course, is another commandment. And the average person says, I have been faithful to my spouse. I've been faithful for many, many years. But remember that Jesus elevates this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, if you look at someone lustfully, you've committed adultery with them. Are any of us exempt from that stipulation? Now again, Paul's point is that we're lawbreakers. He says, do you rob temples? Now in the ancient world, robbing temples was a common crime. Temples often housed expensive artifacts that could be sold for profit. And the law taught in Deuteronomy 7, 25, and 26 that temples were idolatrous and that the Jewish people should not go into them or treasure things from them. There were times when the Jews plundered pagan temples, took these artifacts, and this act involved not just stealing, but self-defilement. In other words, they broke the law. And so the overall point of these verses is very clear. Paul is calling out the hypocrisy of those who don't practice what they preach. And that leads him to make this statement in verse 23. He says, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And this is the crux of Paul's argument. He says, you religious people, you think you have it all together. You act like you have it all together. You boast about your supposed accomplishments. You quote Bible verses and you show your Sunday school attendance pins, but you're lawbreakers just like everyone else. Obedience to the law brings God honor. And then he hits the knockout punch, verse 24. He says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, you dishonor God and you do so more greatly than the Gentiles because you know better. Like you know, you have all the titles, you have possession of the law, you have all your ethics straight, you're a light to the world, but you're still a law breaker. Disobedience to God's law is what has caused blasphemy, he says. And despite your religious activity, you deserve judgment. Now, before we move to the final point, I want us to step back and ask ourselves those questions that Paul posed. Do you teach yourself? Do you steal? 
Do you commit adultery? Do you rob temples? See, there's so many questions we could ask, but the question we all have to ask is, do I practice what I preach? Now, in this moment, some out there might be saying, Pastor Bob, listen, cut, Bob, cut me a break. Cut me a break. I know I might break the law sometimes, but it's not that bad. Author Scott Sauls says this convicting statement. He says, we want a universe that is morally rigid for others, but morally flexible for ourselves. And isn't that true? And just so we're clear, that's not an actual place, right? It's a fantasy world. But so many of us are living in a fantasy world. See, see we, all, we all want to break, but we don't want to give a break to others. We all want to feel good about ourselves and look down on others. That's the heart of the religious person because we're all lawbreakers. We all deserve judgment. What we all need is to recognize and examine our own hypocrisy. And when we do that, it will ironically bring us closer to Jesus. Now, some people think they'll escape because they have the right family name or they have the money to buy their way out, but it's not so, Paul says here. One day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, religious or non-religious. And I gotta say, this is why a lot of people are turned off by the church. And people are turned off because the church is often filled with religious people who want grace for themselves but don't wanna give it to others. We look down our nose at the outsider, those Gentiles, who don't get it. And yet we're unwilling to recognize our own hypocrisy. And so Paul says here, examine your own hypocrisy. Because when you recognize it, ironically, you will grow closer to Jesus because it will bring you to the cross where you need the Savior. And what Paul's been doing in chapter 2 of Romans is trying to convince these religious Jews that their works are inadequate, and he's been doing it by using their own law. But what's the answer? Well, that's the final section. We have to discover true religion. Now, some of us have been listening to this message here, or you've been listening at home, and you're thinking, I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. Maybe some other people out there have issues with pride and their Bible knowledge or serving, but my heart is good. It's good. And if you're thinking that, you've really missed Paul's point. And so he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 25. He says this, circumcision has value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, Every time I come to a passage where Paul mentions circumcision, I ask myself as a man, what was God thinking? Uh, I mean, I think to our modern ears and sensibilities, it seems very odd, right? But ask yourself this question, what does circumcision represent? Because it was indeed the most intimate aspect of the Jewish religious heritage. Literally, I mean, very, very literally, God entered the most private of places and took something for himself. And he did this to symbolize that that person was his. Now pause and consider that for a moment, okay? Just hang with me here. Think about it spiritually. Circumcision shows that God himself comes to our most private of places, the place we let no one else see, the place where we hide from everyone else. God comes to our most intimate place and wants to know us right there. 
But we often try to hide our secret places from God because, listen to this, we try to hide those because we don't believe God sees everything. We don't. We hide. We hide in church. We hide from God. We're so good at pointing out those faults in other people, but never in ourselves. See, religious people hide from God because if they were found out, their reputation would be ruined. If they are proved to be not good enough, then they can't justify themselves. And so ask, is, is that me? Is that you? Now, circumcision represented a Jewish man's participation in God's covenant with Abraham in the earliest of days. And ladies, I just got to say, just be thankful there's not a physical equivalent for you. This initiation typically happened on the eighth day of the boy's life, and I've learned from my Jewish neighbor that God, that's typically when the, the boy was named. But the act of circumcision was a visible reminder that God had a claim on that boy, that he was a son of the covenant. And it was common thought, listen to this, that participation in this activity exempted them from the wrath of God. Now, what did Paul just say in verse 25, though? He says, if you break the law, it's as though you had not been circumcised. So picture yourself being this religious Jew, right? Uh, this would have shocked you. If you're circumcised, you think you're good. You think you've done all your religious activities. I mean, after all, you literally gave a piece of yourself to God. Now, Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works, and so let me bring it closer to home. Like, because again, you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, this is about the Jews. Think again. This principle can be applied to religious Christians as well. Because instead of circumcision, you could ask, well, have I been baptized? Am I a church member? Do I teach Sunday school? And if your goal in doing all those activities is to keep the law and to look good religiously, you're doing them for the wrong reason. And so Paul continues his argument in verse 26. He says, so then, if you are not circumcised, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? What? I mean, again, just shocking statement after shocking statement. What are we supposed to do with this? Right? Is he actually saying that keeping the law can make you circumcised? Paul is saying that obedience not circumcision is what matters most. Circumcision may be a sign of the covenant, but it makes no dif- if, it, if it makes no difference in your life, what's the point? You can go in the baptism tank, and if nothing happens, what's the point? Why did you do it? Furthermore, Paul is making the point to the religious Jews and to religious people that when it comes to God's judgment, there is no distinction. Disobedience to the law brings condemnation. Obedience brings salvation. Verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Now, there was a widespread belief at this time that the righteous would judge the unrighteous. That typically, the Jews were judging the Gentiles. But in verse 27, Paul reverses that. He flips it upside down. Here, Paul says, the unrighteous pagan will shame the Jew. What is he doing? Commentator Douglas Moo makes it plain. He says this. This is typical of Paul's teaching throughout Romans, where the solution to the problem of sin is not a new or deeper understanding of the law, but faith in Christ. 
leading to the indwelling of the spirit and the breaking of sin's stranglehold over human beings. Now, do you see the implications, church? In our religious Christian mindset, we are so quick to dismiss those who don't have all the activities right. We are quick to get ourselves on the moral high ground, showing ourselves to be masters of the law, but we, what we should be doing is running to the low ground at the foot of the cross and crying out to Jesus for mercy because it is only he who can obey and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law perfectly. So stop looking down on others and look to your own hearts. It's then that we discover the true religion Paul outlines in verse 28 and 29. He says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Do you see? This is where Paul's been leading for these 12 verses. Paul has spent his time explaining that outward religious activities don't save. Outward religious activities don't make us better than other people. Outward religious activities don't exempt us from judgment. True religion must come from the inside out, not the outside in. Charles Swindoll says this. He says, Paul emphatically stated that the Lord refers to a Gentile with a circumcised heart. I'm sorry. The Lord prefers a Gentile with a circumcised heart over a disobedient Jew bearing the outward symbol of a broken covenant. And he offers this illustration to make it clearer. He says, which would you prefer? An unfaithful spouse who proudly wears your wedding band or a mate who guards your shared intimacy with his or her life but doesn't wear a ring? See, the wedding band is circular. It's a gold symbol or whatever color it is of eternal fidelity. It's supposed to be an outward symbol of what's true of the wearer's heart. How foolish, how foolish are we to think that the ring is the most important element of the marital union? How foolish are we to think that the ring can keep a person faithful to their spouse? And that's what Paul's saying here. That ultimately you can go through the motions of the religious life. But if your heart isn't truly changed, if your heart is not humbled, if your heart is not the driving force of your activities, you just have a symbol. Man looks at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. So Christian, as we finish our time today, let me ask you to turn to your heart and ask, where is your heart today? Are you so focused on the symbols of your religious life that you've forgotten why we do these activities in the first place? Again, attending Sunday school is not bad. Leading Bible study is not bad. Serving in the church is not bad. Religious duty is not bad. But when we do it from a wrong heart, it can lead to a very dark place. Our activities don't exempt us from judgment. Our activities don't produce changed hearts. They flow from changed hearts. Author Elise Fitzpatrick puts it this way. She says, God looks at your heart. 
He sees not only your outward churchy identity. He sees who you really are, why you do what you do, and what you really mean when you proclaim your allegiance to him. And this fact should alarm us all, and it would if not for the gospel. God invites us to look at our hearts, to examine our hearts, and see what God sees. A heart that needs transformation. And so you ask, how are our hearts changed? Well, Paul wrote a different letter to a different church, a church in Colossae, and Paul again talks about circumcision. It's like his favorite subject. But he talks about it in a very different way. Talking about the cross to the Colossian Christians, Paul writes this. He says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. But not by a physical procedure, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. See, Paul tells us here that as Christians, we've been circumcised in Christ. That on the cross, Jesus Christ was cut off from God so that you and I could be made right with God. He bore the curse of the covenant. He bore the wrath of God that should have fallen on lawbreakers like you and like me. And when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit enters them and works in our hearts, showing us that religious performance is not what matters. What matters is a heart that has been transformed, seeking the praise of our Heavenly Father. And that's how Paul finishes Romans 2. He says this, and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not people. May we be people who seek praise from God, not people. So examine your pride, examine your hypocrisy, and discover true religion that comes only from a transformed heart. Amen? Amen. I'd invite the, uh, the worship team to come back on stage for one final song, and as they do, would you, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to have eyes to see what you see. Help us to look deep inside to examine our motives behind the things that we do, Lord. And we ask that even in those motives, may you receive the glory and may people be pointed to you. In Jesus' name we ask that, amen.